Hey folks, welcome to today's show. Uh, I've got a great show for you today. Couple reminders right off the bat. Number one, this is the Grad School Sucks podcast or YouTube show if you're watching on YouTube. Again, previous name was PhD Going Industry. We did that for a couple of months. I decided to go back to the original name, Grad School Sucks, and we're going to stay there and keep that name. Uh, number two, sign up for my newsletter. If you are a grad student who's looking to go industry, I share tips, other resources, and reminders about new episodes that come out through my newsletter. I will have a link in the description of this episode where you can click on and sign up for the newsletter. No spam, um, and it is free. Number three, add me on LinkedIn. If you are a grad student who does want to go into industry, you need to start building your professional network. And one way you can do that is through LinkedIn. And hey, you can start with me, add me on LinkedIn, I'd be happy to get connected to you. And then of course, please like subscribe, comment, leave a rating and review and let us start the show. Hey, folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Carlson, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations that will help grad students like you survive grad school and thrive in a post-grad school career. If you end up enjoying today's podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we talk about today. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Hey folks, welcome to the show today. We are going to talk about the true cost of a PhD and how to recover from those costs. And I, in my mind, I see three main costs from doing a PhD. And those are the cost of real world experience that you did not get in your PhD and might have gotten otherwise. Number two, the cost of a professional network that exists in industry. Of course, you'll have a professional network that's largely in academia by the time you finish your PhD, but probably not one in industry. And then number three, the true cost, your finances, both in terms of your salary and retirement that are incurred by doing a PhD. And then I'm also going to go over how to uh, recover uh, as best you can in those three areas once you are done with your PhD or decide to leave your program early. So a couple caveats that I want to point out. The first one is, of course, hindsight is 2020. Um, you know, we can all look back and say, oh, if I could have done this and this and this differently, then I would be in a better place professionally. Um, and, uh, you know, that's it's fairly artificial to look at our lives like that. Of course, we don't know what the future holds and how things are going to pan out. Um, so, you know, whenever I look at back on my own past with things like this, I try to embrace a little bit extra kindness, a little bit of kindness cushion in there. And then, um, you know, of course, if I had taken a non-academic path, it, it would not have ended up ideal or perfect. I would have also made mistakes there. Um, so just want to set that caveat at the front. And then number two, this is based on my experience. Your experience will vary in some ways. Um, you know, I was from the social sciences, and so I had a fair amount of industry alternatives, not as many as STEM, uh, but probably more than the humanities. And so depending on where you're coming from, your experience will probably vary a little bit. And then the last thing is, whenever I, I'm talking about the cost of doing a PhD, I'm talking about it 
in comparison to if you had uh, taken your enthusiasm and your desire to grow professionally straight into industry and starting your career instead of going to grad school. Of course, I'm not comparing this to if you wanted to um, you know, go traveling around the world and backpacking and living as cheaply as possible for seven years instead of doing a PhD. All that, that would be awesome. Um, but I'm talking about the cost of instead of having started your career in industry and having spent that time there, um, those, you know, whatever it is, five, seven, nine years uh, that you put into your doctoral training. So let's jump into it. Number one, the true cost of a PhD, the first thing I see is the real world experiences that you don't get. These are lines on your resume. These are skills that you would have developed in industry. These are insights on a particular uh, you know, part of the business world that you didn't gain uh, because you were a grad student. You know, I think uh, you, you can have a lot of real world experiences in academia and you can grow a lot of skills. And I think a lot of that is great. That being said, to recruiters and hiring managers in industry, when they are looking for people in their positions, the number one thing they're looking for is real world experience, not education. Uh, I heard a, uh, a recruiter, SD, who was previously on the podcast, one thing that she said recently on her show was uh, that she talked about how someone who comes out of school with a bachelor's degree and then gets some some experience in the marketplace, they get some real world experience on their resume, is going to be more competitive than someone who gets an MBA and comes fresh out of their uh, Masters of Business program. Real world experience really does count. And, you know, I think the easiest way to see this is uh, in terms of promotions, to senior positions or management positions, they don't go to people with the most education typically. They're going to go to people who, of course, have leadership skills, but also more importantly, the real world experience. They actually understand what's going on for that company in that particular sector of the market. And of course, academic um, time in academia can translate to, to real world experience. And I can talk a little bit about um, how that worked out for me when we talk about this in the second half of this conversation. Um, but you, you really do have to, to explain and show for recruiters and hiring managers how your time in academia matters. Of course, if we're talking about STEM people and let's say you're going into pharma and you're working on the same kinds of things you were working on in academia, this is not Really, this part of the conversation is not really that um, relevant to you. But for everyone else, I think the, the lack of real-world experience that you get when you are in a PhD program um, is important. And it is something that you lose out on that if you had jumped straight into industry, you would have gained. So that was number one, real-world experience. Number two, your professional network. So... We all are building our professional network as we go through our grad program. And um, at the end of it, if you stay in academia, you're able to really leverage that network that you've built over time. However, if you choose to go to industry, you, you, the value of that network goes down drastically 
because the people in who stay in academia really aren't going to be able to uh, help you find jobs and then the people who go industry are probably in the same boat as you a lot of the time. Um, so in my personal experience, uh, I have built up my professional network in academia and when I decided to leave, I looked back and mostly on LinkedIn, to be honest, and to see where everyone had kind of ended up. Um, of course, I knew where a lot of my friends ended up. Um, but the ones I'd lost touch with, I went on LinkedIn and kind of checked it out. And it looks like about a third of people stayed in academia. About a third of people went clinical because, of course, I came from a um, mental health clinical style program. Um, and then a third of people went industry into like data analyst type roles because uh, it was a social science program. A lot of them were quantitative um, and even the qualitative ones got jobs doing market research and that kind of thing. So whenever I went into industry, only a fraction of my professional network was was really even able to help me in terms of knowing what a resume should look like, who are the kinds of people I should talk to, what are the kinds of jobs I should be applying to. Um, and as it ends up, I, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who ended up in healthcare. So um, I'm the only one in healthcare, I'm the only one doing data analytics in healthcare. And so really my professional network uh, that I gained from my time in academia is largely not going to help push my industry career forward. Now, let's take the other perspective as if I had, uh, let's say I, I did my stats and um, maybe in my master's program and I jumped out then and started, instead of spending five and a half years getting my PhD, I jumped into data analytics and healthcare at that point and I started growing my network and growing my skills. Of course, I would have a, a much more rich um, network that could help me build that career in data analytics and healthcare. Um, also, my skills would probably be way more refined, and I would understand that world a little bit better. Um, of course, I love the network that I got. You know, I'm not trying to to um, talk poorly about the network that I gained during my time in academia, but when it comes to having a network that you can leverage professionally in industry, um, academics are often... Uh, not completely at a loss, but we, we lose a lot of the value of our network whenever we leave academia, compared to as if we had just jumped into industry and built a network there. So the third part of the true cost of a PhD is finances. And um, I think for many grad students, we know that when we become grad students, we're not doing it to become super wealthy. And... Uh, I think, you know, many grad students, they're in their early 20s when they start their grad program and things like retirement are really not on their mind. They probably don't have dependents yet that they're thinking about. And so money is great, but maybe not as, um, it's a little bit more far off of a need than maybe a decade after that time period when you look back and you're like, oh, you know, I do need a be thinking about retirement. I do have dependents that, that rely on me. So finances. When you finish your PhD program, uh, the average income that a PhD holder can expect to get once they nail down their job in industry is between 70 and 90k. And that I'm just pulling with my conversation from SD from a couple weeks ago. 
Um, and so 70 to 90 K and that's, that's about what an assistant professor makes. So that's pretty, pretty comparative there. <coughs> Think about the salary that you might be getting though, if you had stayed in your job, let's say if you, if you went into tech, uh, you're doing data analytics, you're doing something relevant there and you got a senior position or a management position. Again, the average PhD takes between like five and seven years to finish their program. Five and seven years, five to seven years is a lot of time when it comes to being in a job and climbing the ladder and growing your skills, growing your network, etc. And oftentimes, this is just off the cuff. Okay, so don't don't hold me to this number. But from from what I see, when I compare. Uh, the salary that I got, the salaries that others have gotten, the first job that a PhD lands is probably not going to be six figures. And if you compare them to their to counterparts who jumped into professional roles and really just started grinding through the ladder and um, honing their skills, much like we did in academia getting our PhD, those people are probably making six figures by then. Um, and so we will likely start at a lower salary rate than um, our counterparts who jumped straight into industry and started building resume lines and honing their skills. Again, uh, there, there will be people this doesn't apply to. I know there are some STEM folks that have told me that they've been able to jump straight into a six-figure job, which is great. Congrats for them. Um, and of course, there are positions that require a PhD. Um, again, a lot of that I think is more on the STEM side. But you, you'll you'll probably enter the marketplace below what your counterpart, if you could have cloned yourself at the time that you went to get a PhD, and that clone went into the uh, industry world got a professional job and climbed the ladder, and then you compared it to the PhD version of you the non-PhD version of you is probably going to be making a little bit more money. Um, that being said, the ceiling for what a PhD can make is probably a little bit higher than a non-PhD. However, it will take you a good amount of time to get caught up. It probably won't be your first job. It'll probably be maybe your second or third job when you finally actually reach the level that your non-PhD clone was at. Um, and then that brings us to maybe an even more important part of this conversation, and that is retirement. The thing about retirement is that it is typically invested in the stock market, and the stock market grows on average year over year um, at a rate of like, I don't know, 6 to 8%. I'm not a financial person. Don't hold me to these numbers. Um, but the important thing to know is that your retirement grows over time and that the reinvestment of that wealth grows and grows and grows the more time that it's in the market. And it's if you think about someone who jumped straight into an industry job, again, let's take seven years as a time for someone who's doing a master's and a PhD. If you take someone who jumped straight into an industry job, maybe they started making 60K, maybe over the course of the seven years, they're able to reach 100K. They're probably investing 
anywhere from two to five, maybe 10% of their salary into their 401k. And if they're at a good company, it'll be matched uh, by the employer at a rate of like, I don't know, up to 5% or they'll match 50% of whatever you put in, depends on the company. But if you think about over, <clears throat> over those seven years, um, how much money that will have accumulated, it's probably in the range of like 50K, something like that. But then if you also think about the fact that the stock market, stock market is growing over that time, that value is going to balloon up um, over those seven years. And I didn't do any kind of analysis. Again, I'm not a finance person, but I was chatting with someone who's actually a previous guest of the podcast. He did do the numbers on if he had taken a job in pharma after he got his bachelor's um, and what his retirement would be compared to, you know, we're not really, most of us aren't saving for retirement during our PhD. So compare, he compared what his 401k would be if he had gone straight out after his bachelor's to what it is now now that he's got his PhD, he's been in the industry a couple years, and it's it's a difference of about $100,000. And that's $100,000 today. And so over the course of the next, say, 20 or 30 years of his career, that could balloon into, I don't know, three or $400,000. So over the course of his life, those seven years in his PhD could cost him hundreds of thousands of dollars in his retirement near at the end of his career. Um, so, so that, that's not really like a happy note to end on. So at this point, let's change directions and talk about how to recover from these costs, these costs in real world experience, these costs in your professional network and the value it adds to your career and these costs in, uh, your finances. So the first one to think about is the cost to your real world experience and I think this is probably obvious to most people, but making the argument that your academic experience does count as real world experience is of course something that we should do. And this is something that I did whenever I went on the job market. And I'll, I'll spell it out right now. So whenever I decided it was time to apply for jobs in industry, I decided I was going to go for data analytics simply because I loved analyzing data. There seemed to be a lot of jobs for it. And uh, yeah, I, it seemed to be like a job I could get pretty easily without picking up a ton of new programs or, you know, things that I really just didn't know how to do. So I applied to a bunch of industry jobs in data analytics. And what do you know? Uh, the companies that were healthcare companies were ones that were more interested in my application than companies that were in marketing or just straight up businesses. And that's because I have a background, arguably a background in healthcare. I was a therapist for I don't know, seven years, a while. I was a therapist for a while, therapist in training, of course. Um, I worked with families who build Medicaid, so I understood the authorization system, 
that uh, Medicaid goes through where you have to get authorizations or credits in order to do services, and then those credits pay you back for those services. I understood the sum of the system of the coding of like illnesses, physical and mental, like with the ICD-10. Um, and then I had, what was the third one? So for the research I did, I studied the effects of maltreatment on children and, and adolescents. And a lot of the data that I analyzed was health-related data. So it might be like the likelihood of them developing a particular disease or mental illness or uh, health risk uh, behavior. And so those three things I kind of cobbled together to argue that I really did already have the experience needed for this job. And I really didn't. And, and, and let me tell you why. So the, the position that I applied for, and I wish I had the position right here today, the position I applied for I ended up getting required two years of healthcare analytics experience. Or maybe it was one year required, two years preferred, something like that. And I was able to make the argument that the time that I had spent in academia, although it was not directly doing healthcare data analytics in an insurance setting, was fairly translatable. Um, and, and that's the word that I really think you should think about when it comes to pitching your real world experience to employers. Uh, translatable. You know, you've done the the basic things needed for the role that you're applying to. You understand the important frameworks, the important background that go into that position. And um, even though you may not have the exact experience they're looking for, you do have something that's parallel. You have something that can translate. And having something that's parallel and translatable and a sidestep from what they're looking for puts you way ahead of, quote, not having experience. So, you know, the easiest way to get experience is to just argue that your academic experience was experience. And, um, yeah, uh, I definitely recommend you do that. So I think another thing to think about is showing off that experience in projects with a portfolio. Of course, that comes down to the relevance of that comes down to the kind of jobs you're applying for. Some jobs, a portfolio just doesn't make sense. For data analytics, I think it does. Um, I don't think it's necessarily required. Um, but then the final thing in terms of real world experience is just to be open to accepting an entry level position. Uh, my position isn't the lowest position of a data analyst for my company, but it's also not the highest. Um, and I think, excuse me, I think being open to starting over and accepting an entry level position, a good position, but an entry level position is great. You don't need to have a senior level position right out of grad school. Um, I, I think unless you can make a super good argument as to how your time in academia was really parallel to what it would have been in industry, I, I just don't think that that's feasible. So I think being okay with an entry-level job 
is uh, is is okay. I think it's a great place to be. And when I think about the fact that I jumped from a research scientist position where I was uh, kind of in charge uh, of a lot of things and I had a team of people that um, I was leading and guiding and I had a fair amount of agency and authority in the organization I was working in and I quit that and then ended up in as a data analyst where you know I'm I'm the one asking questions on how to do things uh, I'm the one looking to the supervisor being like I, I, I don't know what to do for this project I'm the one having to like Google into forums and and really dig through to find answers to these basic questions I have because I'm still learning uh, whether it's learning something about healthcare or learning something about a program like SQL, you know, it, it was a hit to my pride. At the same time, I uh, increased my salary by fifty percent, which is pretty great. Um, and also, after being in such a high pressure environment for many years, it's actually really great to kind of take a step back and let someone else lead the ship for a while and uh, get your bearings. And particularly, particularly if you have kids, you know, enjoy uh, the time when your kids are young and then just kind of like start planning that next move of, um, yeah, I do plan to be in a leadership position one day. Um, when would that be? What would it look like? Does it, should it be in data analytics or something else? Being open to going entry level, I think is a great thing. And um, yeah, of course, you know, uh, make sure you get what you're worth, but also humility is great too. So anyway, I rambled too much on that. Let's move on uh, to number two, professional network. So your network that you're building in academia is going to uh, shudder a little bit in terms of its value that it provides to your non-academic career. Uh, again, like I said, mine was probably cut in down to a third of what it was originally. And then even in that, uh, a lot of people aren't even in like a close enough field to where they would um, add a ton of value to my career. So in many ways, I'm starting over in terms of my professional network. And how I started over was one, I did connect with a few people that were close and uh, were able to give me guidance and, and uh, encouragement and insight. But then the other thing is, you just got to start meeting new people. And I know I say it all the time, but doing informational interviews, or aka coffee chats with people on LinkedIn is the number one way to do it. And I'll keep saying this till the day I die, assuming that it, you know, continues to be the, the best way to do it. And there's even a shortcut to finding these people. It's called the Grad School Sucks podcast. And there are guests on this podcast that uh, are from a variety of fields. And inevitably, inevitably, some of them are going to be from your field. And if you have not found these people on LinkedIn and sent them a message and said, Hey, I heard you on the Grad School Sucks podcast. And uh, I'm in a similar field. And I would love to chat sometime. You... I think you should do that. I think you should do that today. I think you should pause this podcast if you're thinking about someone 
that you've heard on an interview on this show and you've not reached out to them on LinkedIn, pause this podcast, go reach out to them on LinkedIn. Don't wait for a network to revolve around you. That's just not how it works. Even when you start your first job in industry, it won't be an immediate professional network. You'll vibe with like a fraction of the people, probably like 30 to 40%, because that's just how it ends up working out. Um, We really have to get out there and just rebuild the professional network. And the first few informational interviews you do might be a little forced, might take a little bit of energy out of you. But once you get in the groove of it, man, they're just so fun and they're so easy. And it's a great way to connect with people. And frankly, there is this little like, uh, it's like a club of people who got a grad degree and then eventually said, wow, academia is not for me. And then they went off to industry and we all kind of understand that we're in the same position. And that cuts down a lot of distance and competitiveness. And honestly, I've, I've found nothing but like acceptance uh, from people. Um, people have been super willing to help. And uh, yeah, I can't say enough for the PhDs on LinkedIn who are in industry. I think they're fabulous. And again, scroll through the Rolodex of podcast guests that we've had on. Find people that are in a similar field doing something you'd be interested in and just reach out. And uh, yeah, be sure to say that you heard them on the podcast because again, that'll be you know an instant connection, an instant um, thing to start chatting with them about. So... All right, last one. Uh, rebuilding the the cost of doing a PhD in terms of your finances. So um, the salary is is pretty obvious. You know, try to get a good salary. Uh, like Esty said in a previous podcast, seventy to ninety k is what she expects to pay PhDs. Of course, that's in California. So you may be looking at 60 to 80K elsewhere, but PhDs can also get over 100K right off the bat. It is possible. Uh, Of course, STEM people are going to have an easier time doing that. This is my personal take. Take take a good job, even if it's a lower pay than you want, as your first job in industry, and then look around a year later and see what's out there. You know, I I think as academics, we often think about like, the the next position we get is going to be like the position we have for the rest of our lives because that is kind of how it is for a lot of academics. Um, I know a ton of people who, you know, they got their PhD, maybe they postdoced, um, and then the position they got after that as a professor was a tenure track position, and they just never left. Literally, decades have gone by, and they're still there, and that's just not how it works in industry. You know, your first job you you might have for, for six months if, you know, you end up finding opportunities elsewhere. Uh, typically, a year or two is probably more average. But, um, you know, in terms of rebuilding the salary you can earn, job hopping is one way to do it. It's not incredibly, uh, it's, it is popular. What would I say? It's, there's differing opinions on it. You know, a, a an established company like let's say Apple, Microsoft, um, other other big companies, will probably look at someone's resume and if they've job hop a bunch, they probably won't be incredibly interested in hiring them. Um, that being said, job hopping can help you go higher and higher in salary ranges pretty quickly. 
but even if you don't job hop that often, you know, looking for a job every year, you know, after every year that you're in a position or every two years, I think is a great way to do it. And frankly, I think by your second or third position, you'll be at par with what you would have been making compared to your non-PhD clone, to go back to that analogy. Um, but that's that's the less important part of this conversation. The more important part is the retirement. So once you get your first job in industry, do not delay. Open a 401k or whatever kind of retirement thing they have set up and max out the employer contributions, assuming that you can, of course, live on, on the remainder. Um, and, you know, talk to a certified financial planner. I'm not a money person. This is not investment advice. Um, what I did was I maxed out my 401k to the top of what uh, my employer would match me in terms of contributions. I think it was like they'll match 50% or 80% up to 10% of my paycheck, something like that, whatever. So I just maxed it out, whatever the highest I could go. Uh, where they were still putting in money is is what I did because it's essentially free money. And let's go back, you know, you have seven years of not putting money into a retirement account that you need to catch up on. So um, being aware of your options for retirement, incredibly important, especially if you're just starting your retirement in your 30s um, or later and making sure you max out the employer contributions is super important. There are other things to think about, like stock options, which I've just started getting involved in with my company, like being able to purchase the company's stock at a discount. Um, of course, you need to believe that the company's stock is of value, uh, which I do, and I am purchasing some of some of my company's stock um, through that option. Uh, but really just getting on the ball with retirement as soon as possible. That's how you're going to recover. And frankly, because of the way compounded um, interest works with retirement accounts in the stock market, it's very unlikely that you'll ever catch up to your non-PhD self. Um, even if you end up making more money than them, unless you're like doubling or tripling what that person would have made. You know, the time that money spends growing in an investment account is is really important. And I think an interesting example of that is um, Warren Buffett. He's, you know, famous investor Warren Buffett. He has made the majority of his money, I think, in the past five or ten years, uh, pretty, pretty recently. And he's fairly old. I think he's in his late 80s. Um, and that's really, I, I'm sure there's some more complex market dynamics that are playing a role in that, but the, the main reason for the bulk of his investments, uh, or the bulk of his net worth, uh, ballooning over the past five or 10 years is simply time. And we've given up time by doing a PhD. You know, I did two years for a master's program, five and a half years for a PhD program, and, uh, you know, we, we did give up some time and we gave up some time for uh, earning those 401k contributions and then allowing those to grow. So whenever you jump into the job market, 
make sure you start looking at retirement because uh, the time to start saving is today. And that's the end of this conversation. So uh, the, the true cost of a PhD, at least for me, again, let's recap. It was in terms of real world experience. Of course, I got some real world experience in academia. Did I get seven and a half years worth of real world experience? Probably not. And definitely not if we're talking about just what applies to the position that I hold today. Uh, number two, professional network. Um, so like I said, only a fraction of my network is still relevant to the career that I have now. I mean, a fraction of the network that I built up as a PhD. Uh, of course, I've been building my network since then, mainly through LinkedIn, mainly through coffee chats with PhDs who've taken industry jobs. Um, and that's been amazing. And I highly recommend that you start doing that today. And then number three, of course, finances with salary and retirement. With your first job, you're only going to be so competitive. And, um, you know, I wouldn't put too much stock on uh, whatever salary uh, you, you get for your first industry job. Of course, it's important to get paid what you're worth, but it's also your first job. Your second and your third job, you'll be much more competitive for, and you'll be able to get a much higher salary. I think the more important thing is to think about retirement and starting that as soon as you can and maxing out those employer contributions. Again, this is not investment advice. Um, seek out a certified financial planner or some other equivalent financial professional um, if you're looking for anything like that. So that is the conversation that I had for you today. I know it was a little bit of a downer, but I think if I, if I go back to my therapy life, one of the things that I learned was that emotions serve us when we access them and when we accept them and we embrace them. And I think naturally there is going to be some feelings of regret or FOMO or, uh, you know, just negative feelings about what we gave up when we did a PhD program. And I think instead of ignoring those feelings, I think it's good to just tap into them, accept them, and then once we've felt them for what they're worth, move on and move forward and start taking steps in the right direction by getting that real-world experience, growing that professional network, and start setting yourself up for a good salary and retirement. All right, that is the conversation I had for you today. Uh, please share with someone if you like this conversation, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of our episode today. If you did, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we covered today. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See y'all next time.